Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Virginia Gray and Jennifer Benz, who are the co-authors, along with David Lowry, of interest groups and healthcare reform across the United States. Virginia, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having us. Great, and Jennifer, you're there too. Yes, thanks so much for having us on today. Wonderful. I've enjoyed the book a lot, and I think everyone who reads it will. Before we get to it, Virginia, maybe you can, as the lead author... Uh, just give a little more introduction to who you are. Maybe also you're the co-author who's not on the call, and then, Jennifer, we can hear a little bit about yourself. So, Virginia, uh, maybe you could talk about your very um, illustrious career and where you are now. Well, um, now I'm at the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, and um, I overlapped uh, with with, uh, David here. But uh, he and I have been uh, longtime co-authors for... uh, uh, at least 25 years, and um, he, after I uh, arrived here, he then uh, to uh, the Netherlands, but he's back in the United States now. He's at Penn State University, and um, we're both interested in interest groups, but uh, I was the one who developed the interest in uh, health care, and that was uh, partly because I was on the board of the uh, large HMO in Minneapolis, 750,000 members, and uh, it was consumer-governed, and I became a chair of that board at, um, toward the end of my stay there, and, and so I was familiar with the um, with HMOs kind of from the perspective of the industry, and also we often went to a lot of um, uh, national meetings and um, Retreats and seminars, so I learned a lot more uh, there. So, so um, that made me think that I at least knew a little bit about healthcare. Yeah, wonderful. And, and who among us can claim not to have cited Gray and Lowry or Lowry and Gray at one point in the recent uh, past? And so, uh, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. And, and Jennifer, you uh, you're in a different place now. What what about your own uh, background and where you are now? Yeah, um, I am a senior research scientist with the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs, uh, which is a center at the at NORC at the University of Chicago. Um, and prior to coming here, I was a PhD student at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and had the great fortune of getting to work with um, Virginia as her research assistant uh, and getting um, on board this project with Virginia and Dave. Um, and my research has long focused on how how citizen preferences and opinions get translated into um, for policymakers and into policy. Um, so I've spent a great deal of time on, on public opinion work, um, but also uh, looked at that same question through the angle of um, interest groups. Wonderful. Now, Virginia, we've, we've heard just a little bit about the bits and pieces of how you three came together. But I wonder if you talk, and you talked a little bit about this in your preface, um, uh, about uh, was this the uh, book that you originally set out to write? This this uh, a book is a long time in the making. 
um, when you started. Is this what you envisioned publishing in 2013? Oh, no, we envisioned publishing it uh, much sooner than that, um, <laughs> as people always do. But um, uh, Dave and I were um, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in their senior investigator program. And this is a program to try to get uh, scholars who are not experts in health policy to, to draw them into the field. Uh, other, you know, people who are in social science who uh, apply their uh, expertise to problems in health policy. So we had this um, data set that we'd already assembled on uh, interest groups, and uh, they were gracious enough to give us a three-year grant uh, to uh, set our minds to do, doing something with that um, and applying it to health policy. And um, we published a lot of articles at first, but um, Robert Wood Johnson really likes books. So um, it was always in my mind at the end to write a book. Um, but um, when it came time to write the book, it's when we asked uh, Jenny, to, uh, to join us, and uh, she has a lot of healthcare knowledge, and, and she also did the final uh, data analysis for the book. Yeah, and you know, I think this makes such a contribution to the field of interest group research, and also to healthcare health policy research, and also state policy research. Jay, maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of the the the, found, the foundation, the background uh, onto which your analysis in the book is is written. You you write in the book. Uh, and I'm quoting here, although organized interests have been blamed for blocking reform in Washington for nearly 100 years, the same interests exist in the 50 state capitals where successful reforms have nonetheless been achieved. You write then, this is the central research puzzle of the book. I wonder if you could talk about how similar the interests are at the national and state levels. Are we mainly talking about the same uh, affiliates of national organizations, or are there a, a different array operating in some capitals versus others? Sure, yeah. So exactly as you say, interest organizations have long been sort of pegged as the culprit for the nearest of failed healthcare reform attempts at the federal level. And we were seeing states able to achieve reform um, at their level of government. So, of course, the immediate question we wanted to explore was that, you know, maybe there are simply fewer interests working at the state capitals than there are in Washington, um, thus making it easier for reforms to pass. So we took a look at some federal data compiled by Frank Baumgartner and Beth Leach uh, from the lobbying disclosure reports from the late 90s, and we compared that to the um, state-level lobby registrations that um, Virginia and Dave put together in the data set that she just mentioned. And when we looked at the data, it was quickly apparent that on any number of different facets of how you wanted to cut the data, um, less representation at the state level was not the case. So healthcare interest organizations um, in Washington uh, were about 13% of all registered interest organizations, and at the state capitals, it was slightly more, up to 16%. Um, and in both cases, healthcare interests represented the biggest category of interest organizations. Um, furthermore, healthcare interests uh, at the state level were one of the fastest growing interest sectors in the 90s. Um, and the three uh, sort of case studies, policy case studies that we look at in the book sort of had their, um, some of the biggest action happening in the late 90s. Um, so uh, healthcare 
interest uh, at the state level increased by 49% between 1990 and 1997. And then sort of taking um, a slightly different look at the data, the distribution of healthcare interest organizations, every state capital had registrations from provider associations and hospital associations, um, big groups like Pharma and the Health Insurance Association of America were represented in 40 or more states. And then individual companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield were also registered in a majority of the states. Now, this book um, is is both very empirical, and you guys have collected up a lot of uh, data, data uh, a database that, that you guys have alluded to a couple of times. But, Virginia, this book also confronts and tries to make a, a sense of the big strands of theory uh, in these, these, these areas. And, and what you, you use as the central construct of the book is this policy innovation theory. Um, what if you can briefly for us describe what this is and, and then how you try to incorporate this into your empirical, empirical analysis in the book? Yes. Um, we used um, innovation theory, which um, I, I started working on. I hate to say how long ago this was, but I started the uh, working on that idea uh, in my dissertation many years ago, uh, but of course it's uh, it's changed a great deal um, by this time. And then also we used our own uh, theory about interest groups, which is the um, um, the ESA model, Energy Stability Area model. Uh, but first, let me tell you about the um, uh, policy innovation theory. So. Um, we use that to ex- explain all the factors that might go into influencing a uh, state's decision to adopt one of these reforms that we were studying, um, aside from the interest group configuration. So kind of everything uh, else b- besides the interest groups. So, there's really three elements to that uh, theory that we were interested in. And the first is um, what we call the problem environment. So um, sort of how, how big is the need for uh, this reform? Uh, a, a typical measure of need might be uh, the percenter uninsured in the state. Um, and then the second element is um, the resources that the states have uh, because many healthcare programs are uh, expensive and so um, state wealth is also often important. And then the, the third major element is the political climate. And of course, as political scientists, we're um, very interested in that. So that includes things like um, the, uh, who controls the, the um the branches of government, the Republicans or the Democrats. And then we we call all those three elements kind of interim determinants. They're internal to the state. But uh, what interested me when I first started on political science about innovation theory was it also incorporated um, external elements to the state. And uh, one of those is um, horizontal diffusion. So... Uh, states are more likely to adopt a program that's new to them if their neighboring states have already adopted it because that's kind of who they look look to for uh, validation that a program is successful. 
And then also there's an element of vertical diffusion, which has been less studied. But in this, uh, in this research project, we, we measured that by the national media coverage that these different reforms uh, got, thinking that would uh, kind of uh, put pressure on states to adopt it. There was a lot of uh, media coverage about, about this particular innovation. Now, one of the things that's worth noting is the, the various reforms, and we'll talk about those in a, in a moment, that, that you guys study, all take place prior to the most recent national-level Affordable Care Act. And so these ideas of where, where the, the, the ideas behind each policy reform uh, in many ways are, are most uh, hotly debated and, and turned over at the state level. I wonder if you guys can talk about your choices of which specific health care reforms at the state level to study, because you mentioned in the book there's a sort of five areas and you look at these cases. Um, so how did you choose? And, and maybe you can start to talk a little bit about what you found in each one of these areas, because they each work a little bit differently. Well, let me uh, start by talking about why we uh, chose these three different uh, three different uh, policies. Uh, and it goes back to what um, uh, Jenny talked about with the uh, comparing what's gone on at the state level with the federal level. So I was struck by the fact that um, a number of uh, reforms had been carried out at the state level, but at the national level, uh, hardly anything was, was going on at all. And it, and it further struck me that if interest groups were the culprit, you know, we've got the same interest group structure as Jenny just described. We've got the same interest group structure at the state level as at the national level. And so, you know, why are they stopping uh, reforms at the national level, but they're not stopping them at the state level? So that was kind of the puzzle. And also, we uh, we, we wanted to choose, uh, well, basically, these were just the things that were hot on the agenda at the time we started our study, uh, to tell the truth. But... Um, the other thing is we we wanted um, policies that the state alone decides on and the state alone uh, funds. We don't want joint federal-state programs. And people were always coming along and saying to me, oh, you ought to be studying this, you ought to be studying that, because, of course, that was what they were studying, so that's what they always think you should be studying. But, but the, the politics of what they were studying, a joint federal-state program, is entirely different from a, a state-only program. And that's what we wanted to so We wanted to take the, the federal influence out of it so we could compare the states. And so uh, the state pharmaceutical programs um, started back in the 70s, and um, we covered those up until 2003 when the... Um, uh, President Bush got the, um, the uh, Medicare Modernization Act passed, and then we we continued to follow them, uh, but but their nature changed after that point. And then um, in the 90s, uh, the HMO anti-HMO regulations were a very hot topic, and 
at the national level, they had passed both houses and went to conference committee and, and just languished. They, they never became a law. But at the state level, it was just like a policy bandwagon, you know. States couldn't pass these fast enough. They, they, they all loved passing these. And then universal coverage, uh, Hawaii was the first state that passed this. And uh, a number of states tried different things. After that, there are a lot of barriers to states actually being able to, to do this. Um, but, you know, the federal government had, had been, or at least the presidents had tried, had tried for a hundred years um, before um, uh, President Obama actually got the Affordable Care Act passed. And in fact, until um, Christmas Eve of 2009, when it was on the floor of Congress, that was the first time it ever even gotten to the floor of the Congress. So it's just um, quite a tale about you know how the states were doing things that the federal government somehow wasn't able to do. Yeah, and Jenny, in the, just in the title of the book, you guys draw attention both to interest groups, but also to to money and the importance of money. Sort of on, in the totality of what you found, um, and this is kind of the you know the the big question that that people always want to know is you know so so talk to us about money and the relative importance of it. Is it important in different ways in different states, or is there any kind of generalization that can be reached about? How influential money is in in state health care reform policy making sure yeah we didn't have um, focus a ton of the analyses looking at um, financial contributions but we did do one particular analysis where we looked at um, the role of money in conjunction with straight lobby registrations. Uh, we were very fortunate to be able to take advantage of the National Institute on Money and State Politics database. Um, and what we basically did was um, look up individually all of the uh, registered health lobby organizations in Virginia and Dave's uh, data set, and we tried to figure out if they had an act of uh, political action um, committee making contributions in the health sector at that time. Um, and we found something um, fairly interesting in that when we looked at all the PAC money going to state candidates uh, from the health sector, we found that 76% of the contributions came from PACs who were affiliated with a lobbying group. Um, but as you might expect, the you know the money isn't coming equally from all um, registered lobbying groups and from all different types of lobbying groups. And in fact, when we looked closely at the data, we saw that you know of the over 10,000 health groups who were registered to lobby, only 14% of them have an active PAC. So that you know tells us that in the late 90s, when much of this state-level health reform was taking place, PAC contributions were largely the province of organizations organizations already engaged in lobbying, but that very few of those lobbying organizations had a PAC strategy at their disposal. Now, Virginia, I wonder, you, you started the conversation uh, talking about how this, this, this book and the subject matter fits into a uh, long ca- career study uh, of, this, of this topic, um, and we now have this federal act in place, and the question becomes, and you guys address this in the book, about implementation, 
So, so, so as we wind this down, I wonder if you talk at all about uh, where where you sit and what what you, you see in terms of the implementation by states. Some states saying no, we are not going to. Other states we're going to aggressively. But but what's your sense of of where state implementation sits right now? Where how does that fit into the conclusions we can draw from your book? Well. Um I think uh, that's an uh, excellent question. And the um, Affordable Care Act really um, gives three roles to the states. And this, the first one is to set up and run these state exchanges for um, individuals and for small businesses. And that's uh, to um, that's in the, the context of the private um, insurance marketplace. And then the federal government will offer subsidies for uh, people who are not well off. Now, about half the states have decided um, to do this, and about half the states said they're not going to do this. And um, if if they elect not to, then that means the federal government will do it for them. And um, and and so we see both uh, politics and uh, interest groups coming in here because about uh, two-thirds of those states said they're, they're going to participate, uh, that are going to have these uh, ex- exchanges, uh, almost uh, uh, most of those are Democrats, and of the states that are not going to have exchanges, almost all of those are Republican. And then the, uh, the second uh, role, of course, has to do with uh, Medicaid. So um, it was envisioned there would be a significant expansion of uh, Medicaid in states, but then the, uh, the Supreme Court made that um, uh, just a choice, uh, something states can uh, take it or leave it. And, of course, it's very uh, financially beneficial for states because uh, right now it's 100% funded and eventually be 90% funded. And um, what has happened is... Um, that about um, half the states um, are, are doing this and, and about half are not doing this. And so the, the ones, again, that aren't, um, aren't participating are, um, tend to be the Republican uh, states, although there's definitely some Republicans that are uh, participating. So it's, it's not quite as... Uh, um, it, it's it, it's not a wholly one or the other, and um, also the ones that are not uh, participating uh, tend to have the most uninsured. In other words, they need this the most. And so, an example would be Texas, which has one of the highest percentages of unemployed uh, uninsured citizens, 28 percent, and uh, they're they're adamantly against um, participating in uh, the Medicaid expansion. And then um, there's a lot of interest group uh, pressure to participate, though, because the interest groups that represent um, the hospitals, especially in the pharmaceutical companies, um, they they want uh, their states to participate because they represent um, and will represent a bigger market for them, and, and of course they're all for that. And then the, the third role is there's a lot of um, of the state having to oversee the regulation of um, uh, a lot of new regulations uh, in the marketplace. 
and some of that is the uh, rise in um, the cost of health uh, insurance premiums. Um, then there's a lot of uh, consumer uh, protections, like for pre-existing conditions. And um, one that's been very popular is that uh, health insurance companies can't spend more than 80% of the premium dollar um, uh, on anything but medical care. And so the states are in charge of, you know, ascertaining that. And um, and so um, the interest rates are going to play a significant role in that, you know, in that area. And they're going to be they're they're always good at looking at the details. You know, the devil's in the details, and the interest groups are always in there looking at the details. Which, of course, we as citizens aren't. We're neither. Have the expertise, nor usually the interest in looking at those details. So I think they're the the main the main ways our um, our study um, links up with the uh, affordable care. Yeah, the the details of the book are just very very interesting. I think there's so much that um, from a number of different perspectives people can learn from this. Now, uh, before we finish up, uh, Jenny, you mentioned that you're at NORC. Uh, can we get a little, uh, maybe a, a brief snapshot of, of what your current research agenda is? Do you have a, another book project that, that uh, is going to be in your near future, or you, do you have other research pursuits ahead of you? Sure, yeah. I actually um, I started at an ORC uh, mostly as a health uh, services researcher doing um, survey research work for large federal evaluation projects. Um, but after I finished my uh, PhD in political science, I um, came back to NORC, and um, we've been working on starting up this new uh, partnership with the Associated Press. And the uh, the goal of our center is to um, sort of try and fill in the gap of uh, social science research and high-quality public opinion research um, that journalists can use in their reporting and for informing policymakers. So we've got a whole host on a variety of subjects of studies that we've been working on lately, and um, I will leave the door open to maybe a future book project and <laughs> down the road. Right. Well, you, well, you have to promise uh, to come back and talk about that. And, and Virginia, this is um, another in a long line of uh, really interesting publications for you. Is there something uh, on, on your desk that, that you see coming out soon? Is, is Are you continuing to work on, on health care, or have you uh, something new that you're working on? No, I'm working on um, a variety of different things, but none none that have to do with healthcare at the moment. Um, so I have um, four or five different papers I'm trying to get um, get out the door this summer, and then uh, with uh, with Dave Laurie and uh, another fellow, uh, we're working on an edited book on um, uh, population ecology uh, models applied in a whole different. Uh, Set of context of both uh, European and and, um, and U.S. So um, that'll be a that'll be a quite a uh, unusual venture. Well, uh, again, yeah, I, I hope that uh, when that comes out, you'll you'll come back also and, and talk about it. And until these future books come out, uh, the current one, interest groups and healthcare reform across the United States has been published by Georgetown University Press, by uh, our guests Virginia Gray and Jennifer Benz, and also David Lowry, who wasn't with us today. Virginia and Jennifer, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.